Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. How are you doing today, Phil? It's all good here. Thanks, Mike. It's, uh, it's a bit warm, but it's all good. How about you? I am doing fine, actually. Thank you. I'm excited, as always, to speak about our films tonight and, uh, and, and to visit what I think is one of the most challenging top 10 years we've had so far, at least for me. No, it's, yeah, it's been surprising how many good films there were in 2014. I didn't think there were that yeah. many, but it's been a tough one. I didn't think so either, especially after the debacle that was 2009, which yeah. was almost all terrible films. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm really excited about, actually, is we have two special guests tonight. Not just one, but two. Uh, the first guest we have is the famed voice actor Maurice LaMarche, who you might not know his name, but I can tell you, you definitely know his voice. Oh, guaranteed going to know his voice. He's done so many amazing voices. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's done so many characters. Some of his highlights will include, though, he just recently played Mr. Big in the smash hit Zoo. Utopia, and he also was the voice of the brain in Pinky and the Brain. I mean, I think everybody knows the brain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how cool is that? We've got, you got to talk to him. Brilliant. Yeah, and and for the, the movie fans out there, he also played the voice of Egon Spengler in the real Ghostbusters cartoon, which is a treasured part of my childhood, personally. So, yeah, same here. I, I used to love that cartoon. Absolutely. So he was great to talk to, and we actually got him to give us some exclusive after the endings for some of his most famous characters, which is really really cool. So we'll be sharing that with you guys in a little bit and then one of our other special guests is none hold on, other hold on. drum roll oh, oh yeah thank you you do that quite well actually thank you it's are you sure bump. you don't want to give it a, a, an inception buong instead though <laughs> so our, our second special guest who is an uber special guest is none other than the uh one of the big box office heroes of today one channing tatum who will be talking about one of our top 10 films uh, from an interview I did with him uh, a little while back, from 2014, actually. Okay, no, no lies there. It was 2014. It's our top 10 films of 2014. I think that makes sense. It all works out in the end. But yeah, we're excited to share with you an interview with Mr. Channing Tatum that I think you will all enjoy very much. How about that for a packed show? And we haven't even spoken about after the endings yet. That's right. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. Yeah. So, Phil, why don't you tell everyone what movies we're talking about today? Well, we'll be talking about Disney's beautifully animated film, Beauty and the Beast, which is currently getting a live-action remake. Uh, but first, we'll be talking about... Hold on, let me get the full title. <laughs> we'll be talking about the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Yes, that's that cult classic starring Peter Weller, Jeff Goldblum, Clancy Brown, Mary Claire Costello, Matt Clark, John Lithgow, Jonathan Banks, Ellen Barkin, Robert Gray, Christopher Lloyd, oh, and so many other people. You know, it's funny because when I think about that film, I always think Peter Weller, and I forget that everybody else is in it. Yeah. But then you look at it, you're like, that's actually a pretty good cast for a very cult classic 80s yeah. movie that a lot of people haven't seen. Yeah, and if you haven't seen it, it's a very strange film. And my, I'll be summarizing what happens, and it may 
It may well make no sense. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, it it, it really might just confuse you. But we're going to do our best. Yeah. We're going to do our best. And I think that we've come up with some fun endings. At least I, I like to think mine is. I think mine is as well. I have, I have faith that, that Phil's is as well, of course. <laughs> but if, if, for those of you uh, just trying to get a handle on Buckaroo Banzai, if you know Doc Savage, the classic pulp character, it's sort of like that but brought up to date. Well, up to date in the 80s. So there's lots of big shoulder pads. Uh, bizarre clothes and strange goings on. Indeed there are. Well, Phil, why don't you go ahead then and take people through the events of Buckaroo Banzai? Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to go with the, uh, the the opening words from the film itself, which gives us a rundown on who Buckaroo, Buckaroo Banzai is, and then I'll get into the, the rest of the film. So here we go. Buckaroo Banzai, born to an American mother and a Japanese father, thus began life as he was destined to live it, going in several directions at once. A brilliant neurosurgeon, this restless young man grew quickly dissatisfied with a life devoted solely to medicine. He roamed the planet studying martial arts and particle physics, collecting around him a most eccentric group of friends, those hard-rocking scientists, the Hong Kong Cavaliers. And now, with his astounding Jack Carr ready for a bold assault on the, di the dimensional barrier, Bukaru Banzai faces the greatest challenge of his turbulent life, while high above Earth, an alien spacecraft keeps a nervous watch on Team Banzai's every move. I mean... That grabbed me when I was a kid, so sure. it's, it's, it's right in there. Okay, then, so that's the setup. So we have Banzai's testing his jet car using a special thing called the oscillation overthruster to drive through solid matter. It works, he drives through a mountain, but an alien organism is attached to the car. Meanwhile, Dr. Emilio Lozardo, played by John Lithgow, breaks out of an insane asylum. We then find out 50 years before, while working on the oscillation overthruster, Lazardo had been trapped in the 8th dimension and possessed by Lord John Warfen. They must have been on an awful lot of drugs when they wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably yeah. were. Warfen brought the red electroids over this, and this is what Orson Welles reported on in his War of the Worlds broadcast back in the 30s. The red electroids work at a place called Yo-Yo Dime Propulsion, where they've been building a spacecraft to help them defeat the black electroids on planet 10. Warfen needs the... Oscillation overthruster to complete the mission. But Banzai and his team, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, discover the plan and the fact that everyone at Yo-Yo Dine is called John and they all applied for social security on the 1st of November 1938 at Grover's Mill, New Jersey. The black electroids contact Banzai and shock him, giving the ability to see electroids in their true state. Banzai, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, Penny Priddy, who turns out to be the twin sister of Banzai's dead wife, and the Blue Blazer regulars, who are a team of civilians around the world who help out ba Team Banzai, uh, along with a black electroid called John Parker, end up defeating the red electroids and save the Earth. But Rawhide, one of the Hong Kong Cavaliers, is hit by a poison barb and put in suspended animation. And that's uh, that's Buckaroo Banzai's adventures in the Eighth Dimension. I, I think that sums it up about as well as you can, actually. Yes, I could have gone into a lot more detail, but that just would have confused matters even more. Right, right. <laughs> so, Mike, what have you got for your day after? All right, well, before I, I give you my, my day after, let me just tell you two things about the film that will make my ending make a lot more sense. First of all, when the film ends, it did say yeah. Buckaroo Banzai will return in Buckaroo Banzai versus the World Crime League. So that yes. was sort of the teaser at the end, which obviously never happened. The other thing is there's sort of a cult classic favorite scene in the movie. So there's a scene where Dr. Zweebel or Zweebel, whatever his name is, New Jersey, as he's called, and one of his cohorts are sneaking through the lab. And there's this watermelon that's wrapped up in like electromagnetic <laughs> coils in between these giant 
you know, machinery parts. And, and Jeff Goldblum's character says, what's that watermelon doing there? And the other guy says, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and then he never does. And it's, it's such a throwaway moment, but it's one of those moments that fans have really sort of glommed onto and it's kind yeah. of a, a favorite scene. So this is important in, in my endings. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, well worth pointing out then. I do like though the fact that yeah, the Hong Kong Cavaliers just got the names. Perfect. Tommy, Reno, Nevada, New Jersey, Rawhide, just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then, so we've got the day after then. What All have right, got? so the day after. With the alien threat vanquished, Buckaroo turns his attention to young Penny Pretty, the long-lost twin sister of his dead wife. Even though he knows he shouldn't have feelings for her, he can't help it. Meanwhile, Dr. Zwiebel, that's Jeff Goldblum, starts working on a cure for Rawhide, who, of course, was struck by the poison dart. He's survived, but he's in a coma, so... Dr. Zwiebel starts to to come up with an idea that he thinks could work. He has an invention that he thinks can help him. It's a matter transporter. And he thinks he can configure it to transport Rawhide from one <laughs> pod to the other pod and filter out the poison in his bloodstream. But he just needs to test it out first. So, of course, he's going to test it on himself because that's the best way you know, to do it as a scientist. Brilliant. I, d I, didn't even, I didn't even consider that at all. Oh, uh, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, meanwhile... The Watermelon Plots. It's time to gather the World Crime League. Oh. And that's where we'll leave it for now. <laughs> okay. All right. How about your day after? Okay. I've got uh, Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers begin working on a cure for Rawhide. There's some similarities. Sure. With New Jersey taking the lead because he's a neurosurgeon. Uh, Banzai and Penny talk about her sister and where they will go in the future. It's going to be going to take time. They're just getting to know each other still, and they know it's a weird situation, but that's the way it is. The Hong Kong Cavaliers, though, also have to begin rehearsals for their new world tour. Meanwhile, in the jet car hangar, a banana, which had been in Buckaroo Banzai's lunchbox and went with him into Dimension 8, begins to slowly mutate. Elsewhere, reports of opera singers being kidnapped begin to surface. Hmm, that's interesting. Mm. I should I should point out for our newer listeners that Phil and I do not compare our endings before we do this. So any similarities, which there are clearly quite a few so far, and I think maybe a few to come, uh, are purely coincidental or, as we like to say, great minds thinking alike. Oh, yes. Oh, and I must also say as well that some of my uh, – I was having a bit, bit of a tricky time with my after the ending for this one. But uh, my daughter, Hannah, she uh, came with some good suggestions and uh, – Really helped it. Very nice. Good credit where credit is due, you know. Yeah, I want to give a yes because uh, without her, it, well, it wouldn't have been half as weird, probably. Okay. <laughs> so what, that's the day after then. What have you got for the immediate aftermath, Mike? All right. So for the immediate aftermath, uh, Dr. Zwiebel slash New Jersey, I haven't figured out what I want to call him yet, Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> tests the matter transporter pods on himself, and it's a complete success, although he doesn't notice a small fly that got, one, that got into one of the pods with him. He sends Rawhide through the transporter, and it instantly cures him of the alien poison. With everyone healthy again, the band decides to go on a world tour. They announce the tour, and tickets instantly sell out, as the band is bigger now than ever after saving the world. As they're making preparations to start the tour, however, Jeff Goldblum starts acting odd, kind of twitchy. Meanwhile, the Watermelon, whose name is Wingard the Watermelon, <laughs> sends out a telepathic summons to his fellow members of the World Crime League— Percy the Pineapple, a former dictator of a small island nation. Chauncey the Cantaloupe, a mad scientist who's developing a fruit growth serum. Humphrey the Honeydew, a pro-communist propaganda writer. And Persephone the Pomegranate, a computer hacker and fruit supermodel. The World Crime League will soon be reunited. Well, I can't believe we both thought of having mutated fruit. 
it, it, it does beg the question yeah. of what's wrong with us exactly because yeah. that's not necessarily a normal way of thinking. Well, so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, wow, cool. Okay, so my immediate aftermath. Uh, okay. Perfect Tommy, being perfect, notices the disappearance of opera singers around the world and begins to try and figure out what it's all for. After various investigations, it turns out that the World Crime League led by Banzai's arch-nemesis, Hanoi Zan, is kidnapping them and transporting them to a secret base on the moon. Through a new process that's been developing, Banzai and the rest of the team, with the permission of all, all those involved, use the Blue Blazer regulars and turn them into some kind of neural network, basically a type of psychic supercomputer. And they determine that Zan plans on using the opera singers to sing a perfect note that will shatter the dimensional barrier, opening up more worlds for them to conquer and causing destruction here on our Earth. While that's been going on as well, because Banzai is multi, uh, multi-talented, he cures Rawhide, but a side effect means that Rawhide is knowledgeable in electroid technology and begins to build a ship to take them to the moon. Meanwhile, the mutated banana, now sentient and with arms and legs, keeps growing and growing while mutating other fruit, especially watermelons. Wow. Oh, my. We are uh, we're definitely a little on the same path here tonight. Yes. Okay, so long term, what have we got? Bring it on home. All right, well, let's see how it all connects in the end, shall we? Yes. So while the band is away on tour, Buckaroo and Penny fall deeply in love. She knows that he probably has feelings for her because of her sister, but she doesn't care. They decide that when they get back home, they're going to get married. While they're on tour, the other fruits of the World Crime League arrive at the Hong Kong Cavaliers' home base and free Wingard the Watermelon. However, the band has to cut the tour short when Drs. Weeble slash New Jersey slash Jeff Goldblum <laughs> falls ill and starts to undergo a strange metamorphosis. They arrive back at the home base just as the World Crime League frees Wingard from his prison. When Buckaroo sees the Watermelon free, he starts to panic. It's been years since the World Crime League was together, and the last time they almost destroyed the Earth. As he turns to Penny to try and get her to safety, Jeff Goldblum jumps up from the stretcher they've been carrying him on. It turns out that the fly that got into the transporter was a fruit fly. He grabs the watermelon and drains him dry of all of his juices with his proboscis. Then he turns to the other fruits and drains them dry as well. And the day is saved. The shocked Cavaliers all stand there stunned, looking at a six-foot-tall fruit fly. Jeff Goldblum just says, What? and heads off to his lab to get back to work. <laughs> As we fade to black, we see a title card that says, Buckaroo Banzai will return in Buckaroo Banzai versus the Sea Monkeys of Despair. <laughs> the end. Excellent. Okay. So there we go. What do you have for your long-term film? Okay. I've got to... Oh, that's good. I like that. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers make it to the moon and battle Hanoi Zan and the rest of the... Uh, Crime League. Banzai and Zan have a huge sword fight which takes them around the, the moon base and outside and inside and it goes on and on while the Cavaliers manage to stop the plan to shatter the dimensional barrier. And it all ends with, with uh, Zan and the rest of the uh, the Crime League being banished to the depths of space. However, due to a strange quirk through the various systems there, the Hong Kong Cavaliers are frozen for six months. Cryogenically frozen, so they're all okay. Eventually, they thaw out and when they return to Earth, they find America is a changed place, now ruled by Master Banana and his fruit army, Banzai and the team have a new battle to win. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, you know, maybe my Jeff Goldblum can come over to your Earth and save yes. the day by sucking all the fruit dry like he did. That's it, yeah. In my That's, I can't believe we both had diabolical yeah. mutated Fruits. fruit in our endings. Yeah. And it's so and funny I, because it's one scene. It's one scene in the movie that lasts literally 15 seconds, if even. I know. <laughs> but that's the thing that people love about this movie. It had an impact. Yeah, I guess so. Crazy. (laughs) 
All right. Well, there you go. Those are our endings for Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, uh, whatever it's called. It's a super long title. Everyone just calls it Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, Phil, what trivia do you have to share with us about this wacky little film? Well, first of all, Kevin Smith is meant to be working on a TV show for it. So his the first season is going to have the film. It's going to follow that story. Then the second season is going to be about going up against the World Crime League. So Kevin Smith... If it's anything like ours, you know, we're going to have to talk about it. Right. So, Okay. But actual little facts then. I've mentioned the Doc Savage parallels. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, she played Buckaroo's mother, but uh, you only see her in some deleted scenes, which are on the DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, John Lithgow appeared as Dr. Lazardo on Saturday Night Live during an opening monologue nice. many moons ago. Right. Uh, the o- Oscillator Overthruster, the little prop, it appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation as a thing called a Spectral Analyzer. And the episode is called Pen Pals. I remember it. Um, some because of that, I'm a big geek. <laughs> yeah. I, I think right. I, I have vague recollections of it. Uh, what else? Uh, some of the dialogue during the Jack Carr sequence is taken directly from Mission Control Chatter uh, during a shuttle launch countdown. Oh, and also the latitude and longitude recited by the technicians during the alignment of the oscillation overthruster are the coordinates of Cape Canaveral, Florida. Oh, that's a nice little tribute. Yeah. There you go. Very cool. And that's Buckaroo Banzai. All righty. So, Phil, I understand uh, that you are a fan of this movie, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes, I really do like it. It's uh, it's it's my kind of crazy. And it's also got the whole... It's I love old pulp novels and things like that, so it's all based in that. So I just like things like this. Sure. And, and the fact when we go into it, there's uh, this whole history of Buckaroo Banzai. He's got the Blue Blazer regulars. Everybody knows him. I love the fact that there's like a history for, with him and all the characters. And I'd, I just like that when it's all together and you start your imagination kicks in like how did he meet so and so you know perfect tommy and why exactly is he called perfect how can he be perfect at everything and how he came how he could put the hong kong cavaliers together and all that and why are they called the hong kong Cavaliers? yes that's another great question why does he look so white if he's half japanese well you know (laughs) well he he ends up being half robocop doesn't he that's right that's right (laughs) he's half a lot of things in a lot of his movies that peter weller (laughs) i uh i you know i i I, I think I'm in that rare camp of people who've seen Buckaroo Banzai but is not a huge fan of it. I don't dislike it in any way, shape, or form. It's just yeah. one of those movies to me that, you know, it should be right up my alley. It's an 80s film. It's It's got science fiction. It's a comedy. It's all this goofy stuff. And I think maybe part of the problem is I didn't come into it until uh, much later. I didn't see it until uh, the late 90s. So I think maybe yeah. I, I didn't catch it at that age where it would have really captured me, you know? I, th- I, th- I, th- I know what you mean, but I think it's also a lot to do with when you – do first see it about your state of mind when what kind of mood you're in because I, I could imagine of catching it in the wrong the wrong mood I just thinking this is a load of rubbish right because at times even now when you're watching it you're going there's a few scenes where you're just going oh just just move along to the next one <laughs> right 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 yeah so it's you know it's it's a fun enough film I don't like I said I don't dislike it honestly it's been a really long time since I've watched it so maybe I'll go back and revisit it and I'll have a you know a new opinion on it but it, yeah, it's okay yeah. it's all right Oh, yeah, it's 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 worth checking out if you haven't already seen it. All right, well, great. So that's our endings for uh, Buckaroo Banzai. If you are a fan of the film, and I know that some of you are out there, and you would like to share your endings, please drop us a line and share those with us. We'll tell you how to do that in just a little bit. But for now, why don't we move on to A Tale as Old as Time, Disney's <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Be our guest. <laughs> that's right. Be our, sit back, put your feet up, be our guest. We're going to tell you a little bit about Beauty and the Beast. All right, so here we go. Let me take you through the events of Beauty and the Beast. 1991. Can you believe it's been 25 years since Beauty and the Beast came out? Crazy, isn't it? It really is. We got to do some more some more modern movies so I don't feel so old all the time. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, 
you just you just think back and you go, no, it's like five, six years old, and you go, no. Right, exactly. It's a lifetime ago. <laughs> All right, so here we go. In a small village in France, we meet Belle, a beautiful young woman who loves to read and loves her slightly eccentric inventor father, Maurice. She becomes the object of affection of Gaston, a big, burly brute of a guy who doesn't have a sensitive bone in his body, but he does have a sidekick in the form of Le Fou, a bumbling little man who bows to Gaston's will. When Maurice gets lost in the woods, he stumbles upon the run-down castle of the Beast, who we learn was once a handsome prince, but was cursed by a witch when he refused to give her shelter during a storm. The curse says that when the last petal of a magic rose falls off, unless the Beast has found true love, he'll become the Beast permanently. So the Beast makes Maurice stay at his castle, where he meets the Beast's servants, who have all been transformed by the curse into household objects. Lumiere the candlestick, Cogsworth the clock, and Mrs. Potts and her son Chip, a tea kettle and a teacup. Belle goes out searching for her father and finds Beast's castle, where she offers to stay in exchange for her father's freedom. The Beast and Belle develop feelings for each other, but his temper ostracizes her. When Belle uses the Beast's magic mirror and finds out that her father is in dire danger, he lets her leave to go rescue him. She finds him, returns to the village, and uses the mirror to prove to the villagers that the Beast actually exists. When Gaston finds out about the Beast, he leads a mob of scared and angry villagers to attack the castle. But when they get there, all the household servants fight back. The Beast ends up fighting Gaston and almost gives up when Belle comes back and reveals that she loves the Beast, empowering him to overcome Gaston, who he lets live. Belle and the Beast are reunited, and he transforms back into the handsome prince, and they all live happily ever after. Or do they? We're about to find Ooh. out. So, Phil, why don't you take us through your day after? Okay, the day after. The prince, who I believe somewhere it says he's called Adam, I think. Yeah, sounds about right. The prince and the castle residents begin to come to terms with being human once more, as they've been in their altered states for ten years. They also realize that they'll need new plates, candelabras, clocks, wardrobes, etc., as they have been those very things. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Belle also tries to come to terms with the fact that she fell in love with the prince while being held prisoner by him. It's all been very confusing. The villagers, meanwhile, are bamboozled by the castle and its occupants as it had been a place that they'd never wanted to go to all these years. But now suddenly there's all these strangers there uh, and a handsome prince. That's uh, that's my day after. Alrighty. What, what have you got? Okay, so Belle and the prince, who I've decided to call Prince Harry. Get it? Because he's Harry, Prince Harry. You see what I did there? Oh, good God. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll be here all week. Yeah. Try the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> uh, so, so Belle and the prince celebrate their good fortune by throwing a huge celebration. All of the townspeople are invited, even the ones who are part of the mob. The Beast has forgiven them because he realizes that they were just scared and they were being deceived by Gaston. Prince Harry talks to all of his servants and apologizes for everything he put them through over the past ten years. He offers to let any of them leave of their own free will, and he'll give them enough severance pay to hold them over until they can find new employment. Not one servant, however, takes him up on his offer. Meanwhile, Gaston has retreated back to the village, where he starts drinking heavily. The townspeople want nothing to do with him. The girls have all lost interest in him. He's basically a pariah. He's angry, his ego is bruised, and he's humiliated. In short, he's a wounded animal, which is the most dangerous kind. Dun-dun-dun. Okay. We'll leave it there for now. Okay. How about your immediate aftermath, Phil? Belle realizes she may have rushed into things with the prince. She recalls reading in a book a syndrome or something named after a Scandinavian city, which may account for her actions. But she sits down and talks to the prince, and they both agree to take their time because as they got together, they were both 
in a different uh, state of mind and the prince in a different body. They begin to get to know each other better and start dating. Luckily they have lots in common and they get on really well. Belle decides to uh, open a library and begins planning it with her father. Her love of books, she wants to bring it all together and, and get more people loving the whole reading malarkey thing. Uh, the prince... <laughs> The, the prince also says that they can use the books from the castle to get things started. Meanwhile, some villagers notice that food, clothes, and pets are missing. Hmm. That's uh, the end of my immediate aftermath. That's an interesting turn. I, I'm not sure where you're going with. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. I'm intrigued. Okay. What have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, Belle moves Maurice into the castle with her so she can take care of her father. Prince Harry gives Maurice his own workshop so he can continue to tinker and invent, but he won't be far away from Belle, which makes her happy. Belle starts to plan their wedding. Although the beast has been transformed back to Prince Harry, he still sometimes loses his temper, mostly when Belle asks him things like what color china he wants at the reception or if the napkins should be white, off-white, cream-colored, or vanilla-colored. Whenever his old temper flares up, though, Belle soothes him, and eventually he learns to keep it under control. That's easy as well. You've always, you go with vanilla. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, that's what you always go for okay. in a castle set. Oh, I see. I, I didn't, I, you know, I'm not up on my castle etiquette, so thank you. Well, it's just, it's just something that happens in America. Well, you know, you are British, so I would expect that from you. <laughs> <laughs> no generalizations here on the podcast. I played into that stereotype, didn't I? You sure did. Oh, you, you and your colonial it's, kind it's of. True, it's true, it's true. All right, so... Um, so <laughs> So while Belle is planning her own wedding, Lumiere and the feather duster, whose name is Babette, decide that their years of flirtations were something more serious, and they decide to get married themselves. They have a small wedding with just Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts and Chip, and Belle and Prince Harry. Meanwhile, Gaston sends LeFou to Paris, where he is to fetch Gaston's brothers, Pierre, Robert, and Robert Pierre. <laughs> he has a plan brewing. Yes, I, I clearly, my generalizations are out of control because I've come up with very stereotypical French names, and I, uh, you know, like to say things about British people that are very, very stereotypical. <laughs> so I'm going to try and offend a lot of nationalities tonight, apparently. So. Oh, and I've mentioned Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, my <laughs> right? God. Right? See that? We are just racking up the international uh, listeners tonight, let me tell you. Yeah. All right. So If we haven't insulted your country, please leave us a note <laughs> That's right. in the comments. You know how to get in touch with us? Leave us a note on Facebook. <laughs> if we haven't insulted your country, just tell us, and we will get to it in the very next episode. <laughs> All right. Okay, Phil, why don't you bring us home? Tell us about your long term. Okay, long term. Uh, the people in the village have noticed that people have begun to disappear. Uh, Belle and the prince, truly together now, walking in the forest. Their romance is true and they, they love one another deeply. However, during this particular walk, they feel as if they are being watched. A storm begins, so they decide to head home, but their horses, their horses rear, thrown from the saddles when a creature, large and of hideous aspect, jumps out. To their horror, they realise it is Gaston. Ooh. They'd seen him fall from the castle roof, but he didn't die in a fall, but his broken bones set in a twisted fashion. He is cloaked in the skins of dead animals, and his eyes are filled with madness. He is a beast through and through, and in the ensuing battle, he mauls the prince, but Belle manages to kill Gaston when he attacks her and falls on the knife she was holding. It's touch and go, but the prince survives, and they marry the following summer. Meanwhile, the library has been built and is a great success. People all over the realm travel to it for research and the like. Their village grows and becomes a major seat of learning on the realm, and everybody loves Belle and the Prince. The end. Very nice. I think I forgot to mention in my synopsis that the, the Beast lets Gaston live, but then Gaston attacks him and falls from the castle. Isn't that isn't that right? I think that's what happens, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I believe I may have left that out of my synopsis. Well, everybody's seen the film anyway. Every, yeah, you've all seen it. You know. Yeah. 
<laughs> Very nicely done, though, Phil. I like that. Very good ending. Thank you. I like the uh, the Gaston Beast. That's pretty cool. I was going to have him have also the uh, the scalp of LeFou Le oh <laughs> on his head, but I thought, no, I thought it's a kid's thing and it's our best. Yeah, life. I don't I don't know <laughs> that it's, uh, it's going to stay a kid's thing for very long here, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I just, you know, things get a little dark in my ending, but, you know. Okay, then. So it goes dark, then. Let's uh, tell us how it goes dark in your long term. All right. Well, the day of the wedding is almost here. It's been months of preparation, and Belle and Prince Harry are deeply in love. With Belle's help, the Beast has become serene. He no longer has a temper, and he becomes renowned throughout the land for being a kind and generous prince. Are you feeling the darkness yet? Not yet. (laughs) I think it's creeping in. Yeah. The land, under the direction of the new prince and his soon-to-be princess, begins to flourish. The night before the wedding, however, Gaston and his brothers break into the castle. Uh Gaston wants his revenge on the prince. They storm Prince Harry and Belle's room and quickly overpower the couple. Lumiere and Cogsworth rush in when they hear the commotion, but they are helpless against the four muscle-bound brutes. While his brothers hold the prince, Gaston pulls a knife and holds it up to Belle's throat. He tells the prince that he's not going to kill him. He's going to kill Belle and make the prince watch so he can ruin his life the way the prince ruined his. As Gaston draws his arm back to kill Belle, Prince Harry is overcome with rage and transforms into the beast once again. Gaston is horrified. The beast quickly shakes off the three brothers who run away in terror, but Gaston attacks him with a knife. There's no competition, though, and the beast swiftly kills Gaston. When everyone is safe, he transforms back into the prince. For even though the curse has been lifted, he's been left with a gift. In moments of desperation, he can transform into the beast to save the ones he loves. Prince Harry apologizes to Belle for losing control, but she forgives him instantly, telling him that he did the right thing. The next day, the wedding goes on as planned, and under the rule of Prince Harry and Princess Belle, the land enters a golden age of peace and prosperity. Yay! Yay! The end. So it went a little dark, but then it comes out of it. Yeah, I don't like that I'm... Being able to turn to the beast. Yeah, kind of like, a, you know, um, not a werewolf per se, but something where it's like, you know, if, if somebody he loves is in trouble, he's going to be able to, to beast out and save them, you know? Yeah. I think that yeah. I think that seems like a kind of a cool thing to be left over with. Most definitely. No, that's good. I like it. Thank you. All right. So that was Beauty and the Beast. Phil, why don't you share some uh, beastly trivia with us, if you have Or beautiful trivia, <laughs> okay. if you have it. Uh, well, Disney tried to get this film made a few times uh, back in the 1930s and the 1950s but they gave up because it proved to be a bit of a challenge for the story team they couldn't quite get it to work as they wanted it to bell is the only person in the village to wear blue and they did that so she was different and to everyone else she's a misfit and the beast also wore blue because they were both misfits together and that's how you know this is a disney film because their misfits are misfits because they wear blue yes which is you know very taboo mm. apparently. <laughs> uh, the smoke at the end during the transformation scene was real smoke, and it was originally used in The Black Cauldron. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, and the film, they used 1,295 painted backgrounds and 120,000 drawings. Wow. Angela Lansbury recorded her lines during breaks of Murder, She Wrote, because that's all she ever did is make Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> she was on that show for, I think, like 37 years or something like that. Yeah, I, I think it probably could be 100 Oh, you could be. Yeah. Uh, Jackie Chan, this is int- I like this one. Jackie Chan was the voice of the beast in the Chinese dub of the film. Oh, that's fun. I didn't know that. Uh, and uh, the Wilhelm scream yes. was, u- was used. Can you remember where it was used? Oh, uh, you know, uh, was it was it Gaston falling from the from the castle? No, no, but it's, it involves the raid on the castle near the end of the film. It's when a villager 
is thrown through the front doors of the castle. Gotcha. Well, we should explain, because not everyone knows what the Wilhelm scream yes, is, and yes. I'm a very big fan of it. So uh, the Wilhelm scream is probably the most famous sound effect in movies. It is a scream that was recorded by a stuntman. Well, it wasn't recorded by the stuntman. It was a stuntman in a movie in the 1940s, I believe. And somehow or another, this sound effect started to get used in, in movies over and over and over again. And now it's become kind of a trademark, uh, especially in like Lucasfilm productions, Disney productions use it a lot, you know, almost every big, you know, genre movie that comes out these days, you can find the Wilhelm scream somewhere in there. And if and if you want to know more about it, the, just go on YouTube and do a search for Wilhelm scream. There's a really great like three minute compilation of some of the most famous movies in the world showing the scream over and over and over again. It's really fantastic. OK, hold on a minute. I might have it here. Yeah. So uh, if you've not heard of it before, this is what it sounds like. It's been used in more than 225 movies and tele- television episodes. You, once you've heard it, you'll, you'll notice it in so many different things. Yeah, that's what I love about it is once you're familiar with it, you really kind of start – you don't really necessarily listen for it. But then when you hear it, yeah. you go, oh, there it is. There's the scream. I love it. So I, uh, I'm a big fan. I always enjoy catching it in movies. And I've, I've started – my wife has started to pick up on it too because I always point it out to her. So that's a lot of fun. <laughs> so those were our endings for Beauty and the Beast and Buckaroo Banzai. We hope you've enjoyed them. For now, why don't we move on to – our Mighty Morphin mini feature. Yes. What have we got this week, Mike? Well, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, this week we have an interview with Maurice LaMarche, who is, of course, a very famous voice actor. Like we said, he was the voice of The Brain and Pinky and the Brain. He did Egon Spengler in The Real Ghostbusters. He does Mr. Big in the new Zootopia movie. Uh, He also did Destro in one of the G.I. Joe cartoons from the 2000s. Oh, yeah, of course. I remember that, yeah. Uh, He he played Balto in some of the direct-to-video sequels. The first movie of Balto, which I actually like quite a bit was done by Kevin Bacon but he played Balto in the sequels and if you look him up on IMDB you'll see he's basically been in every <laughs> animated project in the history of the world yeah that's true and you'll you'll recognize his voice great characters he does yeah and he's a super nice guy so actually what's great is I asked him to tell us about some of the after the endings for some of his most famous characters and just hoping he would kind of share some thoughts and he did them all in character which was which was really fantastic so here you're going to hear him talking about after the endings you know what some of his most famous characters are up to now <laughs> in character which is a real treat so uh, here you go enjoy one of the things that we do we have a podcast called after the ending where we like to take um, films and TV shows and look at what happens after they end with like what would happen in the real world, some of the characters. So I was curious if you'd be game to share what you think some of your signature characters might be doing nowadays, <laughs> if I asked you. <laughs> so for example, what do you think the brain is up to nowadays? Well, the brain in mouse years is 182 years old, but I believe that somehow or another, creaky bones and all, he's still trying to take over the... Um, what is that thing I was always trying to take over? Um, Pinky? What was I always... Tr- Where are you, Pinky? 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 That's what Fantastic. <laughs> that sounds about right. All right, what do you think uh, Egon Spengler would be up to right now? Uh, Dr. Egon Spengler has retired to a cottage in, uh, in uh, the Hamptons, and he is sure. uh, just growing his spores, mold, and fungus collection. And it's finally taken over the entire cottage and he's uh, encased in silk. <laughs> Very nice. What about um, Destro from the G.I. Joe cartoon, the second G.I. Joe cartoon? <laughs> Destro is in search of a throat lozenge. <laughs> he's just, he can't move in the armor anymore. He's very old, and he just needs a good throat lozenge. 
boy's a shot. Uh, and finally, uh, how about Balto the Wolf? What do you think he's up to now? Oh, it's very sad. Balto's long gone. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> well, that makes he's sense. He's even older than Brain is in mouse years, in dog years. <laughs> right. That story happened That story happened in, the, in the, like the 30s, my friend. Balto's long gone. Well, hey, listen, that's yeah. how sometimes our endings go. They're not always pretty. So. That's right. <laughs> everybody's, everybody's dead. Welcome to life. That's Balto from the afterlife talking. <laughs> Great. There you go. So we get a special guest appearance from uh, deceased Balto. There you go. Right. That was incredible. I mean, it's. It was. I was just hoping to hear him do the voices, but to have him actually do after the endings and the voices of the characters. That's uh, many thanks for that. That was brilliant. Yeah, he was. He was fantastic. Thank you, Maurice. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, speaking of which, there's a lot more to this interview. So, Phil, where can people hear that if they want to hear the rest of the interview where I talked to Maurice about Zootopia, about voice acting, about some of his other famous roles? Where can they find that? Okay, you'll be able to listen to the full interview over at my site, liveforfilms.com, and we will put a link in the show notes for this episode, so you'll be able to find it there. Yeah, so it's it's a really good interview. He's a lot of fun. He does also some other voices in the interview, like Mr. Big uh, and stuff like that. So, so it's really fun to listen to. So please go. Go have a listen to that. But we thought for this episode we would just share his after the endings because they're so much fun. Oh, most definitely. All right. Well, we'll be back with another Mighty Morphin mini feature next week. But for now, why don't we move on to the top 10 films of 2014? Yes, 2014. All right. So, Phil, why don't you (laughs) climb back, (laughs) climb into your time machine and take us way, way back to the year you know, to a, to a full year and a half yeah. ago, so we can all remember what was going on back then. Well, I'm going to keep this brief because we all, it was only a couple of years ago, and also there was loads of, oh, you know, bad stuff. Sure. I, so, I think that's fair. I think most people know what happened in 2014. Yeah. So we got the UK Prime Minister, David Cameron. Uh, Barack Obama was the US President. We had the Ebola epidemic, uh, the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. Uh, this was also the year that Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared and Rosetta Spacecraft's fillet probe lands on Comet 67P, which is the first time mankind's ever managed to do that. We also lost some uh, some legends uh, that year. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Shirley Temple, Sid Caesar, Harold Ramis, Bob Hoskins, Kate O'Mara, H.R. Geiger, Rick Mayo, Robin Williams, Lauren Bacall, Joan Rivers and Mike Nichols just some of the people who departed this earthly plane in 2014. And uh, what about notable births, Phil? Wasn't there any yeah, notable births born in 2014? There were some, some babies who were going to be amazing in about, you know, <laughs> 10 years' time. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In, in 10 or 12, 20 years, we'll revisit and say, you know who was born in 2014? Yeah. And then we'll cry because we'll be so old. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So full disclaimer here. I have, uh, I have my top 10 list. And it was really, really difficult for me to put together because it turns out I really loved a lot of movies that came out in 2014. So what I did was we're going to go through our top 10. But afterwards, I'm going to give just a quick rundown of my 20 through 11 list because there were so many movies that I just I had to mention them. So I'm breaking the rules today. But you know what? I don't care. That's okay. I've got I got a few quite a few films which almost made the list as well. Excellent. Also, a few films that I wanted to see at the time and never got around to. Ah, well, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure there will be mm. some, as we know from past few weeks, there will, I'm sure there will be some on our list that the other one will not have seen. So yes, yes, why don't yes. we jump into things then and uh, and see where we each come in. So, Phil, let's start with your number 10. Okay, my number 10 is Edge of Tomorrow, or as it's commonly known for some reason as Live, Die, Repeat, because that seemed to catch on more. But that's the one with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, directed by Doug Lyman, where Tom Cruise does the whole Groundhog Day while fighting aliens. It's uh, based on 
novel, Japanese novel, I think it is, called All You Need Is Kill, which I thought was a much better title. Uh, that was written by Hiroshi Sakurazaka. Uh, I really enjoyed the film. Always enjoy a bit of Tom Cruise, to be honest. And Emily, Emily Blunt was fantastic in it. And I just love the concept of a person who's not a very good soldier living the same day over and over and getting steadily better and better uh, until they become like an ultimate, ultimate warrior. Yeah, it's, it's a great film. And it's interesting because that movie had a lot of marketing issues, and I think that's part of why it didn't do better than, than it should have. Oh, yeah. It just, it but originally just... it was called All You Need Is Kill, and then it went through another couple changes, and then it became Edge of Tomorrow, which is completely bland. And then on, But when it came to the home video release, they actually marginalized the Edge of Tomorrow yeah. title, and they made Live, Die, Repeat the main, the key art on the cover. So a lot of people, I think that's why that's kind of stuck, is because they sort of marketed it as that to sort of counter the the generic title that Edge of Tomorrow is. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, I can see why Edge of Tomorrow, it, does, it is applicable to the film, but it just doesn't have that, it's not punchy enough. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. So my number 10 is a little scene animated film called The Book of Life. Now, this is a movie that was conceived of and, and the character designs came from the mind of Guillermo del Toro. And for some reason, it didn't really take. It wasn't a big hit. And honestly, it wasn't a movie I had any plans to see. But then I got invited to a press conference and uh, as part of the press conference, they showed the film beforehand. So I went to watch it and I absolutely fell in love with it. It's a very funny film. The visuals of it are amazing. The character designs are fantastic. And I've actually become a little bit obsessed with the movie. Uh, I have some of the very few toys that were made for it. I have the art book that's out and I just really love it. It's, it's very, very fun. And one of the main actors in it is one Mr. Channing Tatum. Ah. And so this is the opportunity I had to speak with him. So this is a press conference, and uh, there are some other journalists present as well. It was a pretty small group of us, and we all got to ask uh, Channing a, a question or two. Uh, he was a super nice guy, so we thought we would share with you guys uh, what he had to say. This first part is mostly him talking about the film itself, so have a listen to that. The idea of life and then whatever comes after... The idea of when someone moves on to whatever's after, if the people that are still in this world treat them as if they're there, cook them their their, their favorite meals, uh, serve their you know their drinks that they that, that they used to like, if they like apple juice, or tell their stories or their jokes or or whatever. I mean, it's like as if they're there, they're really there, they do exist, and and I just think that's one of the most beautiful traditions that I've heard. Because when I heard about it, it was, it was about the Mexican Day of the Dead. I was like, wow, how are they going to pull that off as a kid's movie? And I think it's such a beautiful way of looking at it. Like, it, it doesn't deal with it as death, as in, like, they're gone. It's, it's why it's literally the land of the remember. You know, that they don't go, they don't go away. You know, they can really still be with you. And I, and I think, you know, I, I think some people will maybe be afraid to reach with their children. But I don't know. I think it's a really, it's, it's a really safe and beautiful way to talk about them. It's going to happen eventually. You know, they're going to have to, I guess, learn about it. Better maybe to learn about it in a beautiful fiction world. Yeah, that was a, I mean, uh, there was nothing animated yet, but there was a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, character art and world art. It uh, it was just so alive. It looked like a magical pinata burst open and, and like, <laughs> Mexican culture fell out, you know, and, <laughs> uh, or Latin culture. Uh, you know, uh, the first character picture that I saw was um, he had a way bigger mustache, which I'm very upset that he had his bigger mustache as, uh, as he did. In Joaquin's mind, his mustache is way bigger than, uh, than what's actually in the movie. I don't know if they incorporate, I mean, I'm sure that 
the animators, they film you while you're doing the recording and some of the stuff that I was doing, the fighting-wise, maybe they put it in. Uh, I, I don't remember all the stuff I was doing in those crazy recordings. You just sort of very, very insanely vomit out a bunch of like stuff and um, someone the idea of someone that fights saying their own name is hilarious to me uh, yeah, like, it's the funniest thing in the world so I, I, <laughs> that was not in the script that we just sort of found on the day so I mean they, they that's what's so amazing about I think the animated world is that it's such a fluid process I guess you know that sometimes they don't even know where where the idea is going to come from it just sort of just sort of materializes I think it I think it really was for me living in the world, this world, and, and it's obviously a very magical land. It's not exactly, it's not Mexico. It's like sort of San Anel, which is a sort of fantasy town. You know, and we're like, we're a little marionette looking type, like wooden people. And, and uh, you know, so I don't really know if I can speak to what it, what it was like to play a Latin character. And I didn't really try to portray that because we really did want it to feel like there was, that not everyone had you know, a Spanish sort of feeling persona or, or, or voice or anything, you know, to give it a little bit more accessibility. I think that was smart. So it, you didn't feel like only, I could only connect to this if I, you know, was that. But it was, it's cool. I mean, I, I've learned a lot about, about that tradition specifically. I mean, I still don't know Spanish, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's cool. I, I mean, you get to really learn a lot about a different, doing what I get to do. You get to drop into all these really interesting little worlds. Look, animated movies are, are like vacations for actors, because <laughs> like, like you look, you don't you don't have to work twelve hours a day. Like you, you know, on a, on a live action movie set, you show up and you're generally there for about 15, 12 to fifteen hours. Mm -hmm. I get to show up in my sweats, and like yeah. uh, you know, Zoe jokes around like she's like, I don't even brush my teeth when I go in. I just like <laughs> go right in, and, and you know, you sit in a in like a soundstage, and there really aren't any wrong answers when I say that like I could have done, I could have spoken French, and he'd have been like. Maybe that'll work. I don't know. Like, uh, you know, we're not wasting time here, you know, because we have enough. And, you know, it was play. It was a really playful thing. You know, it, it was it was nice to like, kind of give the reins to somebody else, you know, and, and really let them run and then come back and be like, all right, this is what we've got so far. Uh, let's keep building. And in this next part, Channing talks a little bit more about some other things like his relationship with his wife and movie making in general and stuff like that. I'm married, so I, I, I try to do all, as much as as much as I can of that stuff. Uh, I mean, look, I I danced with my wife for an entire three months before we actually like you know started to date, I guess. And you know we've been together nine and a half years, so I'm sure I've done a lot of that stuff. Uh, I haven't fought monsters uh, or anything, <laughs> but um, but you know singing and dancing and stuff. <laughs> I do remember actually when I was going to do Jump Street. Uh, I had just worked with uh, Chris Pratt, and I looked at him on like the. I was about to go do Jump Street, and I looked at Chris Pratt, uh, and I go, "Man, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm about to go do a movie that I think you would be way better for." It. <laughs> 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 and he was just like, "Wait, really?" Uh, you know, we had a conversation about it, but you know, I guess that was my selfish, because <laughs> I went and did the movie. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, in the selfless side of it, you know, you. You do have to, when you're on a movie uh, and telling a story, I think one of the things I've only learned probably in the last three years, four, four years, um, is that the story is not about 
it's not like you're not the story. The story is the story. The movie is the story. And I think when I a lot of young actors and, and a lot of actors in general just they only worry about their character. They only look at like who their character is and what they can do to make it bigger or better or whatever that whatever that is. Instead of trying to understand why and how your character fits and services and is a part of the larger story. That was excellent. Very nice to hear from Channing. Yeah, you know, he's actually a really nice guy. He's very funny. He's very intelligent. I know there are some people out there who don't like him. I'm a big fan. Um, and, and meeting him in person really just cemented that because he was just very humble yeah. and, and very down to earth and just a good guy. That's the way he always comes across. I really like him. And it just, he just, yeah, as you say, he comes across as like a really nice, nice person. And a, yeah. It's uh, nice to hear that. I think you can hear it whenever he's interviewed as well. I think so. The Book of Life as well. It was a good film. I saw that. Oh, good. Uh, when it came out. And uh, as you say, it, it's. It's absolutely beautiful. So colourful. Yeah, it really is. And great character designs and, and a lot of fun. It's worth checking out. Definitely. I, I, I like it quite a bit. So that's my number 10. So we're up to number nine. My number nine is one I think you probably don't like, but let's see. It's uh, Inherent Vice uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> no, you're you're right, Phil. Uh, yeah. That is probably one of the worst movie-going experiences I've ever had in my life. So, Well, it's, it's quite a divisive kind of film, yeah. reading things online. People either... Liked it or hated it. Yeah, they either liked it or they have good taste. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I, I, I didn't go to see it at the cinema when it came out because I got a bit put off by the things. I've been looking forward to it, but uh, I should have gone to see it at the cinema. But I finally got to see it. I, I really enjoyed it. I love the, the whole vibe of it. It's Joaquin Phoenix, Josh Brolin, uh, the beautiful Catherine Waterston, Martin Short, Benicio Del Toro, Reese Witherspoon. It's a huge cast, and it's based on the novel by Thomas Pynchon, which was uh, always claimed to be unfilmable. And I could sort of see that, because it's, it's almost on the verge in places of falling down, but I just, I like the whole, just have this whole feel of the times are changing. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's just, it just works for me, okay. but I know it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, nope, that is <laughs> that is the truth. All right, the less said about Inherent Vice, the better, so we will move on. Uh, my number nine pick is It Follows, which is one of my favorite horror films of the past decade or two. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. Honestly, it could have been higher on my list if this was a weaker year, but um, it's just it takes that trope of teenagers having sex and getting killed and, and kind of makes it the center point of the movie where this strange, horrific force is following Following, uh, the person who has kind of this curse and the only way to get rid of it is to have sex with somebody and pass it on to them and then it starts to follow them but if that person dies the curse reverts back to you and you start to yeah. come under fire once again it's really creepy what I like about it is it's all atmosphere there's no gore there are very little yeah. gore anyway. It's not about jump scares. You know, it's not the cat coming out of the closet, but it is creepy, creepy, creepy. It's got an awesome, like, John Carpenter-esque score, and I just, I really loved it. Fantastic film. Yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant movie. It would have been on my list, but it came out in the UK in 2015. Oh, so okay. the only reason it's not on my list. Darn it. So there we go with that, with that yeah. US-UK thing again. All right, and fair uh, enough. As, as we've said before, sometimes, you know, it's going to be a bit different because we're on different sides of the ocean. But yeah, it's a, totally agree with you. It's a very good film. Um, yeah, Michael Monroe, she's, uh, she's brilliant in it. And funnily enough, she's in, uh, she's in my next film. Really? Yes. And that would be? She's the guest. Oh, the guest, yes. I, you know, yes, I did like but, that movie. I'm a big fan of, yeah. of Dan Stevens, who's in that. Yeah, yeah, because it's uh, directed by Adam Wingard. It stars Dan Stevens, who most of us know. People who watch a lot of TV will know him from uh, Downton Abbey. 
Of course, he was Matthew. Yeah, and I became, he decided to give that all up and became an action hero. Well, or a serial killer. <laughs> You're right. Uh, but it's Dan Stevens, it's Michael Monroe. It's a it's a fun thriller. It's got a great style. It's uh, got like an eighties vibe to it as well. It really does. I think yeah, and uh, and it builds really well. And you sort of you never quite find out exactly what Dan Stevens' character is all about. You just get little snippets, and he's he's just uh, an unstoppable killer who once he gets going just keeps on keeping on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie. I didn't make my list, yeah. actually. Um, it's one of those movies, you know, I, I really like it, but it falls just short of me loving it for some reason. I don't know yeah, yeah. why exactly, but it is worth watching for sure. And actually, I have been um, touting Dan Stevens as one of the best actors out there since he left Downton Abbey. I mean, he was fantastic on Downton, and then I've seen him in every role he's been in since then. He's completely different. And every time I get a chance to talk to him, I, I talk about him. <laughs> I wish I got the chance to talk to him. Uh, every time I get the chance to talk about him, I always tell people, like, you know, I think he just has such a generic name as part of the problem. Yeah. But yeah. Dan Stevens, man, is one to remember. He's fantastic in everything. And he's he's not quite a big, big star yet. But he's, man, he's bound to be because he's fantastic. Well, he's, he's making some good choices in the roles he's taking. Oh, yeah. Because he, he was in that Walk Among the Tombstones, which is, I think was 2014 as well. Yeah, and he was good in that. And uh, he's going to be in the new uh there's an x-men tv show in the legion he's playing legion yes yes i'm very excited about yeah. that actually because that's that's because it's that should be a good one for him because it's he's meant to have different personalities so it should show quite his a lot of his range in that film right in that tv show yeah absolutely Okay, so that was my number eight. What's yours number eight, Mike? All right, my number eight is Gone Girl, based on the hit novel by Gillian Flynn, directed by David Fincher, starring Ben Affleck, and featuring an amazing, amazing performance by Rosamund Pike, who I've been in love with since she was first appeared in one of those James Bond movies with Pierce Brosnan. Uh, I think she's fantastic. I think she was amazing in that film. And just, it's just, it was a great book. And when I read it, because of the way it's written, I wasn't sure how how they were going to pull it off as a movie, and, and they did. Yeah. They pulled it off in movie form and captured everything about the book and the narrative style of it that made it work. And I just – I love it. It's a great thriller, and I think it's fantastic. Oh, well, uh, I never got to read the book. I must get my oh, it's really worth – even if you've seen the movie, it's yeah. really worth well, reading. Well, I, I, saw, I saw the movie, and I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, it didn't quite make my list, but it was bubbling under for a while. But it's a David Fincher film. It's always going to be worth a watch. Oh, for sure. And uh, it's it's another one of those which shows that Ben Affleck can act if he's given the right role. Oh yeah, and he, does, he does a great job at it. And yeah, as you say, it's a great cast and it's an extremely well made film. Indeed. Yeah. Okay, so my number seven is Nightcrawler, starring Jake Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. He was on a, he was on Conan, it. and it's yeah. actually nobody quite pronounces it right. It's always I can't remember who did it though. Anyway, it's directed by Dan Gilroy and uh, Jake. As I'll call him from now on, he plays Lewis Bloom, who's a bit of a, a strange character, and who ends up stumbling on a new career as a cameraman for the news services in LA. I think it is. You find out early on though he's not a very nice man, and it's uh, it goes dark, uh, goes dark even before the sun sets. Right. Yeah. And you could also, I remember reading somebody, somebody wrote, I can't remember who it was though, but he said uh, you could watch the film as if uh, Bloom was some kind of vampire sucking the life out of people. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, uh, this is one of those movies where I, I felt like actually Jake uh, got snubbed for an Oscar performance oh, yeah. or an Oscar nomination because his performance in this movie is utterly fantastic. And this is around the time he started to really dial into his acting and become, I think, one of the best, you know, actors working today. Yeah. Uh, but but Nightcrawler is terrific. And I, I definitely think it's the way he has a, his eyes are sort of like burning out of his skull. But there's, uh, when you look at him, 
he's like being insincere, but there's absolutely nothing behind the eyes. It's like the eyes yeah. of a shark, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's a great analogy, actually. Yeah. His performance is terrific. So good choice. Yes. Very good. Thank you. All right. So my number seven. Now, now this will probably seem like a fairly obvious choice, but, but it's not. And here's why. Okay. My number seven pick is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh yeah, which is a, a movie a lot of people like, and it is a Wes Anderson film. Uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's funny and frenetic, and great performance by Ray Fiennes, who should definitely do more comedy. Oh, he's amazing. Um, it, yeah. He's he's terrific, and everybody in the film is fantastic. But here's the thing. I really hate Wes Anderson. I know. With, with a passion. I'm surprised, I'm surprised it made your list, to be honest. Well, that's the thing. I was surprised, too. I do not like Wes Anderson films at all. I liked Bottle Rocket, and I've hated every movie he's made since then. Uh, passionately. I really don't like his movies. I know people love Rushmore. I can't stand it. I know people love <laughs> um, you know, the, the Moon Moonrise Kingdom, whatever it is. I yeah. hate that movie. I do not like Wes Anderson the films. The Life Aquatic? He, he makes... No, I hate that movie. Uh, he makes movies that are quirky just to be quirky. Oh, Royal Tenenbaums? Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't like him in any way, shape, or form. So when when Grand Budapest came out, I watched it just solely. You know, I, I try and give everything a fair chance. You know, yeah, I, I yeah. try never to discriminate against a movie until I've seen it. But I, I fully expected to hate it, and then I absolutely loved it. So oh. uh, while it may seem an obvious choice to some people, you have to realize it's working against years and years of disliking Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it, that's pretty high on my list considering, but I, I do find it to be a very enjoyable movie. Oh, good, good. But just just reading between the lines though, I'm not quite sure. What do you think of Wes Anderson <laughs> in general? <laughs> well, maybe I didn't put it uh, as clearly as I could have, but uh, not generally a fan. No, it's, it's it's a good film though, yeah. But uh, my number six is a documentary. Hmm, intriguing. Uh, called Tim's Vermeer. Oh yes, yes, a very good film. Yes, and it's directed by Teller of Pan and Teller fame, and it follows Tim Jennison, a an inventor, and a quite nice chap. He attempts to duplicate the painting techniques of Johann Vermeer to test the theory that Vermeer painted with the help of optical devices, and it's an absolutely fascinating documentary. Tim is a great person to follow, and he. He's made an awful lot of money from his various inventions, and so he puts it to good use. He goes traveling around the world to see the various galleries, talk to art experts about how it was done, and then he builds he builds like uh, the set of uh, the room from the famous painting. It's uh, the painting, the music lesson. So he builds the entire room uh, and gets actors in to stand in the poses and uses various optical devices and then proceeds to paint his own Vermeer. And it's, uh, it's a brilliant documentary and well worth... Uh, fine seeking out if you haven't already yeah and his vermeer is a flawless replica of the original oh, it's, that's it's, the thing it's incredible how yeah, he does it i think it. my my i like the movie very much i think my biggest problem with it though was that he sort of intimates that anybody can then do this technique once they figure it out and it's like i got news for you you could teach me how to do that all day long and i would never be able to produce something that looks like that even using his little mirror and photos and all that you know like you know well i i, I was watching it when he said that i went yeah yeah i could do that <laughs> well i'm glad well listen i've seen your artwork you probably could me i i can't even make a convincing <laughs> stick figure so um but no very good movie very good movie not on my list but i, I did enjoy it for sure yeah it is but it said it was only played a few times in a few places because i was down in London for something else, I can't remember what it was, but I had a bit of time, and uh, the nearest cinema was showing that, and I'd, uh, I'd heard good things about it, so I checked it out, and I'm very glad I did. Well, my number six pick will, I think, highlight the differences between you and I, because you went with a documentary about paintings, and I went with... <laughs> 
superheroes beating the crap out of each other. So clearly, I think I lean a little more towards the popcorn films than you. But my number six pick is X-Men Days of Future Past. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, you know, I've been an X-Men fan for years and years. Since I was a kid, I've been reading the comics, and they've always been my favorite team of superheroes. And Yeah, same here. They've always been – I love, love the comics. Yeah, and you know what's funny is I've liked all of the X-Men movies except for that horrible Brett Ratner abomination hmm. um, because Brett Ratner is the worst director in the world, although maybe Wes Anderson. But anyway, um, I was at least say. Wes Anderson's made one film that I like. Anyway, um, yes. I don't want this to be the hate podcast. So, <laughs> But uh, I've always liked the X-Men movies, but none of them really ever were movies – They were never. I never loved the X-Men movies. Like, You know what I mean? I always sort yeah. of was like, oh, that was pretty good, but it was never quite – It was never like the comics and there was always something not quite right and just right. you go, you go it, oh, well, okay, and there was never yeah. enough action – yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. like, that was pretty good. I liked the first one. I liked First Class, but they always had some just some kind of issues. But Days of Future Past, for me, is like the perfect X-Men movie. It's one of my favorite comic book storylines. And, and even though they changed it dramatically, I love the film anyway. And that, I think, is really a good sign. And there's a there's a, a different version of it that's available separately on home video from the regular version called The Rogue Cut, where Rogue is a much bigger character in it. And I watched that version of it and yeah. it's just as good as the theatrical cut if not better and I okay. liked it so much actually I watched it twice in a row I watched it once through to, to watch the film then I watched it right through again with the commentary track so I could find out about all the changes they made so uh, I recommend the movie highly if you like the X-Men films it's my favorite of them all and then check out the Rogue cut as well if you get a chance because it's really really good yeah I've, I really enjoyed the uh, Days of Future Past and it's, it's like you it's my favorite of the X-Men films I've not seen the road cut yet, but I need to check it out. But again, even even then, it's still not quite X Men enough for me. I'm not sure why, but it's no, that's fair. But it's, that's uh, fair. but it's still still the best the best of them for sure of the films made so far. So my number five, you've already mentioned it, is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Where's Anderson? It's funny. It's sad. It's dark. It's full of stories within stories. And as you said, Ray Fiennes is brilliant as M. Gustav. He's just it was a breath of fresh air seeing that because I was expect I, well I didn't know what to expect from him, but. He's just swearing and he's charming and it's just, oh, yeah, brilliant character and a yeah. good film. Yeah, great film. I actually have to agree with you. Yes, so. <laughs> okay, what, what, what have you got for number five? All right, my number five film is awesome. In fact, everything is awesome. My number five pick is the Lego movie, uh, which is absolutely brilliant. I mean, I took my kids to see it because it was Legos, and it looked pretty funny from the trailers, but I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a movie based on toys, so, so who yeah. knows what you're going to get. But, but Phil Lord and Chris Miller are absolutely brilliant. They did the 21 Jump Street movies. They did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And, boy, the Lego movie is just – it is – so funny it's so smart so clever so meta there's so many in jokes and and pop culture references but it's it's timeless at the same time and i i just i love it i i think it's hysterical and i've seen it with my kids a dozen times i never get tired of it no it's a, it's a very good movie and I, I i love it as well but it didn't quite make my list mainly because it's the bit you know when it comes uh to the real world yeah, that's but that's brilliant. No, it's, it's it's brilliant as well. But just the way it was done, it didn't quite. It didn't work. The logic uh, of it, it, uh, it didn't. Uh, it, that, uh, that, that bit just made me go. Mm. <laughs> I love that part. I uh, think when that happened to me, and, and I was watching the theaters, I was like, "Oh, I can't believe they just went into the real world." But it, and it, oh, it was so perfect. Uh, so uh, listen, agree to disagree. I, I, it's a fair no, criticism. No, I, I like the way that they come to the real world. It was just the way it was done. Didn't quite didn't work for me. Fair enough. So, Fair enough. Uh, right. But no, it's well, a very then... good film and it's very, very funny. Yes, it is. All right. So how about your uh, number four there? My number four is uh, The Coen Brothers Inside, Lewin Davis, starring Oscar Isaac, Carrie Mulligan, Justin Timberlake, John Goodman, Adam Driver. 
it's set in the 60s following Oscar Isaac's Lewin Davis, who's a folk singer, trying to sort of make it big and just muddling through. And he's he's not the nicest of chaps, but he does he does the best he can. And it's uh, I just I just loved it. I love the music, the style of it. It's the Coen Brothers. It's not all of them work for me, but this one did. And there's some really catchy songs in it. Sure, absolutely. I'm not a huge Coen Brothers fan, but I am a huge Oscar Isaac fan. So good yeah, pick. Yeah, good pick. Thank you. All right, my number four. This is the movie that most people are probably going to have to look up on their computers or their phones, and it is called Cuban Fury. And it stars Nick Frost, who's best known, of course, as Simon Pegg's sidekick in all of the, uh, you know, the Shaun of the Dead and all those movies. And he plays a former salsa dancer who gets back into salsa dancing to try and impress his new co-worker, who's played by Rashida Jones. And it's one of those movies that... I don't know that it's quite laugh out loud funny, but you will be smiling from start to finish. Like once the movie starts, you'll just be smiling the entire time. And when it's over, you will keep smiling. It's one of those movies that just leaves you warm and fuzzy inside. The story is nothing we haven't seen. You know, he he has to learn to salsa dance all over again. Then they enter a competition. Will they win? Won't they win? You know, all this stuff. But man, (laughs) it, it is just one of those movies that I absolutely love and it's really worth tracking down if you like a good comedy that's just sort of a feel-good movie please 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 go go check out cuban fury i i promise you you will not be disappointed yeah it's one of the ones i'm i was aware of it but uh, i never got around to seeing it and it sort of just time went on i must i must check it out because i do like everybody involved Chris O'Dowd's in it as well, isn't he? Yeah, Chris O'Dowd. He's hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray Winston is yeah. in it as as a salsa teacher. <laughs> um, Olivia Williams is in it. She's fantastic. It's just it's a great great movie. I would definitely watch it sooner rather than later because you yeah, will. I, think, thank I do me. like Nick Frost as well and Machine. Yeah, Jones, they're so. fantastic in it. So so yeah. worth a watch. Oh, good stuff. Okay, my number three then is. We're heading into the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Very good. A very good 70s spy thriller and set in the, in the MCU. It's got Robert Redford, good story, great action, and so many of it made an awful lot of money, so most of you out there have seen it. What more can I say about it? Well, not much, but let me tell you what I'm going to say about it, because it is also my number three pick. <gasps> We've got a match. We've got a match, yes. It's, hey. uh, it, it, you summed it up perfectly. I, I will just point out, Robert Redford is in a Captain America yeah. movie. Now, if you've listened to the show at all, you have some idea what that means to me, because I'm a huge comic book fan, and I'm a huge Robert Redford fan. And you have to know that if Redford's going to be in a Captain America movie, there's a reason for it, and it's because it's yeah. such a damn good film. Uh, like you yeah. said, it's kind of a conspiracy thriller vibe, which makes it even better for Redford being in it because of the ones he was in in the 70s, like Three Days of the Condor. Um, but just, you know, great superhero action. Love the humor in it. The characters are great, and just, you know, really amazingly put-together movie. Probably my favorite of the Captain America films so far, even including Civil War. Yeah, because... Uh... Marvel, they just Marvel Studios just they nail it every time with the casting. Yeah, they just get it so right. They do for and, sure. And who would have thought they would have got the Captain America films would be so good? Oh, I know, I know. They could have they could have definitely gone a different direction, but I yeah. I love them very much. It's so. Good to what they're doing. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so that's both of us. Number three yep. for my number two, it's another Marvel movie. It's Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, very good choice. Yes, it's uh, just so much fun. Chris Pratt's amazing. Rocket Raccoon, Groot. Uh, it just and it takes us somewhere new in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, where it's gone cosmic, and it's which opens the door for so many other characters from the comic books. Right, right, yeah, I love it. Uh, Excellent choice. Yeah, can't wait to see what they do in the volume two. Oh yeah, that I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. 
Well, my number two is a slightly different film. It is Whiplash, starring J.K. Simmons, who won an Oscar for his performance, and Miles Teller, who didn't win an Oscar but also turned in an amazing performance. And, you know, it's a simple movie about a kid, you know, a college student who wants to be a great drummer and the uh, borderline sociopathic teacher who wants to make (laughs) him into a great drummer. And uh, I I will be honest with you, there's nothing about it in terms of story that's going to make you go, I have to go see this movie. But it is so, so good. I really, really love this film. And it almost made my number one. I waffled back and forth on my one and my two. Uh, I easily could have tied them. It's just such an intense film. I love the ending of it. I love the acting in it. And if you haven't seen it, don't. Don't worry about the storyline. Just just yeah, go watch it, that. and trust me, you will you will enjoy it. It's an amazing, amazing film. Yeah, it's uh, almost made my list. Okay, I was wondering. Uh, I didn't know if maybe that was gonna be your number one. Yeah, but I was I was I was thinking about it. But as as you say, it was a uh, performance is a brilliant. But the story just isn't quite. Well, you're not watching it for the story, but it just didn't uh, quite make the list for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, uh, All right. Maybe another day of it being a slightly <laughs> different movie. Sure, myself. that's fine. What's your uh, What's your number one then, Phil? I want to hear it. Okay, my number one is What We Do in the Shadows. Ah, yes. The New Zealand mockumentary starring Teiko Watiti and Jermaine Clements, Reese Darby, and a few other people. It's very, very funny. If you've not seen it, it follows a house full of vampires who all share the same house and deal with modern life in New Zealand. And we also have the werewolves, not swearwolves, werewolves. I actually just, just wore that T-shirt the other day, believe it or not. <laughs> Brilliant. But... Uh, I was, I didn't know what to expect. I liked the people involved and then I just watched and just laughed pretty much consistently all the way through. Just lots of fun. And it was just, just a breath of fresh air, even though it dealt with people who are hundreds, hundreds of years old. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I love Jermaine Clement. So I, I think he's brilliant. Yeah. So excellent choice. Go on. What have you got for number one? Well, it's not going to be a big surprise because it was on your list just a moment ago. It is Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Uh, and, and like you said, it's just such a fun film. And, you know, I've watched it a few times. And that's what's telling for me about 2014 is almost every single film in my top 10 list I've watched more than once. And, and these days with kids and the podcast and my writing and everything else, I don't have a lot of time to watch movies more than once but I've seen almost every movie on my list at least twice and it's because they were so good and Guardians man that movie just puts a smile on my face it it's it's yeah. big it's it's you know great science fiction but so much humor Chris Pratt like you said is I mean that's a star turn right there I mean that that movie turned him into a movie star overnight and yeah. uh, you know I just I really love it and when I think of like what movie would I want to watch over and over and over and over again Guardians of the Galaxy is is it yeah. it's my top film of the year Brilliant. Well, it all, it all, I kept flip-flopping between what we do in the Shadows and Guardians of the Galaxy and just sure. just went a, a different way. But, yeah, it's a brilliant movie, Guardians, and uh, so many good things in it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our uh, that's our 10 through 1. What about you? You said you had some extra films you wanted to mention, Phil, so why don't you share those with us? Yeah, some of the ones that uh, didn't quite make the list, though, there was Big Hero 6, The Raid 2, Boyhood, Birdman, The Equalizer, Godzilla, which I sometimes I sort of like, but I'm not mm. quite sure whether I like it. I think I would have liked that movie more if Godzilla had actually been in it. Yeah, that's the thing. But he's not. And Neighbours or Bad Neighbours, as it's mm-hmm. called in the UK. Right. Um, what else we did? Oh, and there's a film which uh, came on my list, which I, I kept meaning to see and still haven't, The Rover. Oh, The Rover's which, great. Yeah. Robert Pattinson in The Rover. Anybody who doesn't like Robert Pattinson because of Twilight, go watch The Rover. His performance will blow you away. It is yeah. like a, a 180 degree turn from anything he's done anywhere else, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. And Guy Pierce is terrific, and the film's ending is uh, just 
terrific. It's a great film. I highly recommend it. Very bleak, though, for people who don't yeah. like stuff that's a little on the darker side, but definitely worth watching. Yeah, okay. So uh, what about you? What were your... All right. Well, I actually went through and ranked my choices because this is how much oh, okay. I was in love with 2014. Yeah. My first few, though, are movies that not a lot... Of, well, not my first few, but there are some on here that a lot of people didn't like, I guess, especially my first one, number 20, which was Three Days to Kill, starring Kevin Costner and Amber Heard, which I thought was hysterically funny and a great action film, but everyone seemed to hate it. So whatever. If there's any other Three Days to Kill fans out there... Unite. We got to stick I together. I haven't. Must admit, I haven't seen it. I like the. Uh, I like the trailer for it. And I like the idea, and I do like Kevin Costner. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It's a fun film. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It had a lot more humor in it than I expected. But critics, yeah. man, ripped it to shreds. So yeah, I don't yeah. know, but I loved it. So that's number twenty. Number nineteen was The Hobbit: The Battle of the Five Armies, which I enjoyed also more than a lot of people. Number 18 was Kingsman, The Secret Service, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, number 17 was Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, which I thought was a terrific reboot of the whole uh, Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan thing. Unfortunately, it didn't do very well, but I actually liked it quite a bit. Also, with, with Kevin Costner in a great supporting role. Yeah, and they filmed, uh, they filmed some of that here in Liverpool. Oh, right. Cool. Yeah, so when, when they were filming, you kept seeing Chris Pine knocking about. Right. Well, there you go. Uh, number 16 was an excellent little film called 71, starring Jack O'Connell from uh, that Angelina Jolie movie about the prisoner of war. I forget the name of it right now. Undefeatable, yeah. un something, yeah. un something undivided, um, unfatigable, whatever it was called. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, it's about a soldier who gets basically trapped behind enemy lines, a British soldier behind Irish, uh, you know, and there's mobs of angry Irish people. And he basically has to survive the night. And it's it's brutally intense and really fantastic worth a look if you can find it yeah i need i need to check that out i kept kept meaning to watch that and i've snuck around to watching it yeah because uh, oh you'll love yeah. it it's really good uh number six number 15 was paddington which i thought was amazingly charming <laughs> yeah that was a fun film oh uh, yeah loved it the kids yeah. loved it and i loved it so yeah. uh, number 14 was nightcrawler which you mentioned a film i loved just didn't quite make it onto my list Number 13, I know we've talked about this before, Amazing Spider-Man 2. I know people hated it. I don't care. I love it. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't think it was as bad as everybody was saying. Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I love it more than pretty much anybody. So that's number 13. <laughs> number 12, you mentioned Big Hero 6, which was terrific fun. And number 11 was Birdman, which was a movie I expected not to like and actually ended up really loving just just barely missed out on my list yeah so there you go a little extra from our top 10 list for this week very good phil uh why don't you tell us about the uh box office how did uh how did we stack up well uh not too bad but there were some films which uh well okay anyway let's jump in uh, number 10 we got interstellar mm -hmm. good film and and easily could have made my top 20 but it, it was just outside of it yeah I, I i really enjoyed it to be honest i didn't think i would but uh yeah i thought it was a good film yeah I liked uh, number nine amazing spider-man 2 yay so you there. Eight, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Good, good film. Which I really enjoyed as well, yep. but uh, didn't make my list. Seven, Captain America Winter Soldier. Of course. X-Men Days of Future Past. Yep. Uh, the Hunger Games was number five with Mocking Jay Part One. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the series overall. That's not the weakest of them for my money. But... Yeah, yeah. Uh, number four was Maleficent. Which I still haven't seen, actually. No, me neither. I haven't seen. But I want to. I hear it's really good. Uh, number three, Guardians of the Galaxy. Of course. Number two, The Hobbits, The Battle of the Five Armies. Right. And number one, any guesses? Gosh, you'd think I could remember because it wasn't that long ago. Mm. Um, uh, if it wasn't Guardians of the Galaxy or Cap or X Men, uh, no, I don't. I don't know actually. That okay, well, it's it's whenever I post news about when they're making a new one of these films, people always go, "Why are they doing it? Make another one because they're dreadful." And I always have to go because they make so much money. Transformers, yes, Transformers, tra <laughs> Age of Extinction. Gosh, I can't believe that was the number one film for the year too because that was. 
I mean, you can say what you want about the Transformers films, but that was by far the worst of them. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure which which one is it. Is it the one? It's with the one with the Dinobots. The, but oh, they, yeah, they advertised yeah. the Dinobots being in it, but they were only in like the last like 15 minutes of a, like it was a I think it was a four and a half hour movie or something like yeah. that. I don't know. It made Lawrence of Arabia look brief by comparison. <laughs> it made one billion one hundred four million fifty four thousand and seventy two dollars. Wide, but I think like a billion of that came from China. Yeah, yeah. So they, do, they do huge numbers in China. Though. I know box office wise, it was huge worldwide. I I don't think it was as big here in the U.S. at least. So yeah. But yeah, but, well, there. What are you gonna do? But Disney had three films in the top ten that year: Guardians of the Galaxy, Maleficent, and Winter Captain Soldier. America. Yeah, that's a good year. Disney's yeah. having a lot of good years lately. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so all right, well there we go. So that's the top ten films from 2014. I am sure a lot of people have some thoughts on their top ten films. So please feel free to share them with us on our Facebook page or any other places. We'll tell you how to do that uh, in just a moment. Phil, before we do that, why don't we talk about the movies we're going to be after the ending next week? We'll be doing our first Hitchcock movie, The Birds, which is a, a brilliant film with an excellent ending. So. Um... I'm looking forward to see what we come up with on that one. Yeah, it should be fun. And then we will be going Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I think is our first Arnie film as well. But probably not our last because he'll be back. Uh, get it? Oh, Sorry. Oh, did the, so bad. Uh, so painful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll be you doing... can fire me anytime, Phil. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay. Oh, no, it's a different one. No, wrong one, yeah. <laughs> yes, we'll be doing The Last Action Hero, which many people hated. I didn't think it was that bad, and I believe Mike loves. I, well, you know, I don't know that I'd say I love it, but here's the thing: uh, when when it came out, I remember being disappointed, like everybody else yeah. was, because this was at the height the, at the height of his fame, and it was shortly after Terminator Two, and people expected this great movie, uh, and I was disappointed. But I actually I caught it on TV just a couple of weeks ago, and I have to admit, I had a lot of fun watching it. I actually think, even though some parts of it are dated, I think it it's gotten better with age. Almost some of the humor, I think, works works better now. It's very meta, which yeah. I love. Love, yeah. um, as we know. So, you know, I think it's a film that's worth revisiting, actually. I don't know that people are going to change their minds about it, but I certainly did. So I, I think it could be worth rewatching. I think I think you nailed it on the head. I don't think it's necessarily a bad film. It was just disappointing, wasn't it, when it first Yeah, came I up, think but... people just had high expectations for yeah. it that weren't met. But, I, but now... I, I, I love the concept behind it because you could go – if you had the rights to all the different film characters, you could do you could do wonderful things with that concept. Oh, absolutely. And there are some great jokes in it, you know. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's just it is watching it now without those expectations. I was like, this is surprisingly funny. There's some really biting commentary on action movies in here. So uh, so I, I do like it. I, I enjoy it. But uh, it'll be fun to play with. I know there's a lot of other Schwarzenegger films we could have chosen to go with for our first one. But uh, yeah, this gonna, it was on my mind. So we're going to go with The Last Action Hero and The Birds. Very good. That's an interesting mix. It should be fun to see what mm. we come up with. And we will also be doing our top 10 films of 1933, which yeah. will be interesting. Yeah, you know, I like to go back to classic Hollywood sometimes, and I believe there was a couple of really notable films in 1933. Hopefully we've seen enough films, and if not, then we'll maybe do, you know, something yeah, like, creative. <laughs> I'm sure we will have seen enough. Yeah, and if not, we'll figure something out. Simple yes. as that. <laughs> All right, so Phil, why don't you tell people how they can get a hold of us if they would care to do so? Okay, you can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending, also on facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can find us on iTunes if you search for after the ending. We're on soundcloud.com backslash after the ending podcast. And we're also on Stitcher. And you can also email us directly by sending us a message at after the ending at verizon.net. That's V E R I Z O N.net. And Phil, where can people track you down specifically online? You can find me at liveforfilms.com. And I'm also on Twitter as live 
live underscore four underscore films. Gosh, it's hard to say that out loud, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But, uh, yeah, on, on Twitter, Facebook, or oh, Instagram, and all the usual places. So if Live for Films should find me. There you go. And where can they find you, Mike? Well, the best place to find me is wordsoutloud.com, which is the hub of all my creative works, including this podcast. You can find it there if you want to listen to it directly on the website. You can also get some exclusive fiction writings. And if you swing on that way, you will be able to download a bunch of free things, including an audiobook and a digital book. So please visit me there, as well as on Facebook at facebook.com slash Official. Okay, well, Phil, I don't know about you, but I have to go battle some mutated fruit. So I'm going to head off into that. As always, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. How you doing tonight, Phil? How you doing today, Phil? Today. Why don't we... Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard to break out of that. Tests the matter transporter pods on, him, on himself. Tests the matter... <laughs> yep. When Bell uses the beast's... Blah, blah, blah. I like to mumble. Have you noticed that? I do. <laughs> when Bell uses the Beast's magic mirror to find out... Let me do that one more time. <laughs> when Bell uses the Beast's magic mirror to... F okay, I maybe I lied. Two more times. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm intrigued. Okay. Uh, why don't you lead me into my... Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, what have you got then for That's your you, can, you just sit there in silence, Phil. Don't worry <laughs> I about just, me. I was, I I was can... just reading over my notes again, going, <laughs> yeah. why hasn't he said... Yeah. I can feed okay. myself my own cues. So, Mike, how about your sure. immediate aftermath? Well, thanks, Mike. I think I'll take it from here. Hold on, let me make this sound natural. <clears throat> here we go. Hey, Mike, what have you got then for the long term? <laughs> <laughs> so... You want to leave me one? You want to just? Oh yeah, I've done it again. <laughs> I keep reading the notes. You're doing a bang up job tonight, Phil. Go on. And under the rule of Prince Harry and yeah, and under the rule of Prince Harry and Princess Belle, the land enters a golden age of peace and prosperity. Prosperity, prosperity, yeah. Pros Something prosperity. prosperity is what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> and under the rule of Prince Harry and Princess Belle, the land enters a golden age of peace and prosperity. Prosperity. <laughs> Why can't I say that word tonight? I know how to say the word. Okay. And under the rule of Prince Be Prince Bell, really? Prince Bell. Prince Bell. Oh, Prince Bell and Princess Harry. That's the twist in the ending, you see. Oh my god. Yeah. Don't ask what bathrooms they use. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Well, very topical. A little, a little topical, I know. <laughs> Showing the scream over and over and over again. It's really fantastic. Okay. Hold on a minute. I might have it here. Hold on. Oh, a little uh, little production wizardry live on the podcast. Let's see how oh, this turns out. Hold on. Oh. That was not it, Phil. Ah! <laughs> that was it. My God. Asking Channing questions, all of which he answered. Meh. You know, I, I get Oliver Klemp when I think about Channing Tatum. I just can't even talk. <laughs> that's C. Tate, isn't it? You know, yeah, C. Tate, yeah. <laughs> I believe that's what the kids call him. And, yeah. Yep. May as well fall apart at the end. 